You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media app for the outdoor enthusiasts. Whether you hunt, fish, hike, or camp, Go Wild has a feature for you. You can visit timetogowild.com for more information or visit your Google App Store on your mobile device and download the Go Wild app. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So tell me about this big buck that you missed. Uh, what about it? <laughs> <laughs> Went up the day after Thanksgiving, kind of up to a new area. We'd never never been there before and got up there, and there was actually a, a fair number of people up there. It was really accessible by four-wheeler, so basically we were hunting right off a four-wheeler trail. Seen quite a few does um, and seen a fair amount of bucks, you know, kind of pushing the does around. And... You know, one of our other guys got on a deer, lost it somewhere in the all the snow, and then everybody left at like 10 o'clock, and we sat there, and he's like, well, you want to leave too? I was like, no, let's stick around, you know, till 1230 or so and see if these deer get up moving because there were so many deer. I mean, we probably seen 35 deer. And it's like there's so many deer that I think once everybody gets out of there and it kind of calms down, the deer will get back up and moving. So about 11 o'clock or so, there was – started seeing some deer moving and all this and I was like all right well it's about to pick up and we look kind of I don't know it's probably a quarter mile away maybe a half mile away and I see this deer cutting through this aspen thicket and I was like man there's a good buck over there and so I throw up the binos and look at it it's like yeah it's good and it stops and then makes you know almost a 180 and starts coming almost to us and I look down below us and there's four does down below us and I was like man he's coming for those does so I bailed off dropped down and got into where those does were knowing that he was going to come to those does and sure enough I'm just still hunting and there's probably a foot of snow I'm just still hunting through there and all of a sudden deer just running by me left and right it's like holy crap and here he comes and I could just see how wide he is because he's coming right at me he's coming back to full draw and I'm looking at him and he stops because he kind of seen something, but he didn't know what it was and he's facing me. And I'm like, man, I need to let down. So I let down and I range a tree that was 36 yards where a doe had just went in front of. And mm-hmm. I was like, sweet, 36 yards, good shot. That's where he's going to go. So he turns and starts going that way. I draw back and I stop him because I only had one little opening. And he stops with his head in the opening. He turns and he's he's not looking at me, but he's kind of looking at 45 to me. And I'm like, all right, when he steps out of this opening, I'm going to shoot him because his leg closest to me was back. So I was like, when he plants that leg in the opening to walk through that opening, I'm going to hit him right behind the leg. Mm-hmm. So I'm holding back at full draw and plants his leg, steps, and I had 30-yard pin, you know, just over mid-body basically and squeezed it loose. And I watched that arrow skip right off the top of his back. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, crap. So yeah, was, was, uh, <laughs> was he actually closer than what you thought, or did he pretty much go right where you thought he would have range-wise? Why do you think you missed him? 
Uh, he was when I went to his tracks in the snow and ranged back to where I was. He was only like twenty two yards. Oh wow! Yeah, he was a <laughs> lot closer than I thought. But there was just there was so much going on that I ranged it, and when I hit full draw, because that's where the doe went. That's where I thought he was going to go, and I just had that focused in my head. Thirty six yards. I was like, "This is easy. Can't miss this." Set the pin on it, and I remember him stepping forward. And I put that pin right you know, just above mid body line thinking 36 yards, I'll drop it right in there. And I watched that white arrow skip off his back. And I was just like, huh, that sucks. <laughs> that's, that's unfortunate. Are they this time of year? Obviously this is, you know, what I would expect to be pretty good rut timing, uh, for, for mule deer, for what I know about them. Are they lower in elevation now than they are in September, October based on the snow? Yeah. Yeah, they're dropping off quite a bit right now. Where we hunted, we talked to some guys that hunt that area pretty frequently, and they say until there's about a foot, foot and a half of snow, they'll be in there, and then they'll move out. And we probably had yeah anywhere from eight inches to a foot in that general basin that we were in. But, yeah, we were only maybe 8,000 feet, somewhere in that range. They had dropped down pretty low. So, and I mean, we've seen – I'd venture to say we've seen probably 15 different bucks, and the smallest one was a just a two-point, you know, nothing special. But we've seen some pretty big deer in there. Uh, I was really surprised for being as accessible as it was by four-wheeler, what kind of deer we were seeing in there. What does the rifle season structure look like right now? Like You're using a bow, obviously, but what other seasons are going on? Um, I don't think think there's any seasons going on right now i think pretty much everything has ended where i was hunting is the wasatch front so it's the extended archery season and it runs until for deer it runs until the 30th for elk it runs until the 16th um, so basically it's the mountain range just east of salt lake um, they've kind of got it set aside as extended and like the area that we were hunting in is not even open to any rifle season so it's bow only all uh. year Interesting. Um, so that's, yeah, so that's part of the reason why we think there was so many big deer in that area was that it doesn't get rifle hunted at all. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a benefit to us. Yeah, because from what I've seen on TV for guys rifle hunting mule deer out west, you know, it's like if you can cover some miles and be able to glass some areas, being able to find a buck, one, you know, the, the amount of time that it takes from being able to find a good buck to being able to kill them is usually more straightforward. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy. You can get, you know, finding a buck and getting within 400 yards of it is what most people consider a shootable distance. There's some guys out here that shoot. I got a guy I work with that killed his deer this year at just under 1,000 yards. Um, so, you know, that's a long shot on a deer. Um, another buddy I work with killed his at, with a muzzle loader at 420 is what he ended up killing his at. Whoa. Um, so, I mean, they, they push the limits out here, so – yeah, interesting. With um, <clears throat> with the rifle seasons ending earlier, is it essentially something throughout Utah that their rifle seasons typically will end prior to, you know, when kind of the peak rut is for for mule deer? So if yeah. you want to hunt the rut, you pretty much have to hunt with archery in that state. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and even a, for the most part. That goes on the extended. Um, so most other units that you draw, so it's kind of odd in the way that you can draw. So like if you drew a Ponscant tag, basically, which is a limited entry tag unit, your archery season is only from like 
August 16th until like September 20th. And then it's done. And then muzzleloader season will come in for two weeks. And I think firearm season comes in for like 10 or 14 days. Um, and then it's basically done. So it's probably most all firearm seasons or most all seasons are done by the end of October, basically. Um, some of them may go into November, but most of them are done by then. And that's pretty much it for those seasons. And then, like, if you have a archery tag, you can hunt the Wasatch Extended, which is the extended season archery all the way up through the end of November this year. So that's where we were at. My tag was actually for a different unit, but because I didn't harvest the deer in that unit, I can then take that tag and hunt on the Wasatch Extended. And only until the end of November, and at that point, everything's done? Everything's done, yep. But they're probably all pushed into really low areas, I'd imagine, private land for yeah. the most part. Yeah, really low, concentrated areas. <laughs> um, you know, this year, we're actually pretty light on snow so far this year. We've only had maybe two or three snowfalls, um, so it's still pretty light on snow. So they're not pushed down as far as they typically would be. Uh, but also, in a lot of places, they close some of the roads that go up into the mountains on November 1st. So then you can't access these places that are deeper into the mountains because they just close the roads off because they don't want to have to maintain them for snow control and things like that. But you can still use four-wheelers with them? Some of them you can and some of them you can't. Like the one we went to, um, the restriction is 50 inches. So it has to be 50 inches or smaller. And basically on the side of the the vehicle gate, they'll have a 50-inch opening that you can drive a four-wheeler around the gate to access these areas in some places. What about snowmobiles? Do people take snowmobiles out there? Is that legal? Uh, I would assume if there's enough snow, um, but like right now there's just, I mean, the trail was pretty much beat down to the gravel, but then off the trail was snow. Gotcha. But you got to keep it on the trail. So I would assume if there's enough snow, you could. Okay. Yeah, around here we haven't really had much snow either. It's, you know, a couple inches and it'll melt, a couple inches it'll melt. Um, but it it is uh, starting to get pretty cold. Like this morning, for example, I think it was 10 or 15 degrees, you know, wind chills around zero. So that's starting to get pretty typical for this time of year. And it'll continue to kind of average around that and then continue to get colder on some days. And then you might get some warm days around 40 degrees. But for the last couple of years, I mean, snowfall, at least in sort of the, uh, you know, November, December has been pretty light, you know, even towards the end of our bow hunting season in Minnesota, you know, a lot of times it's been very, very little snow. And like this past season or this past year, we didn't really get a whole ton of snow until like March, April timeframe, you know, well into the spring. And before that it had been pretty dry. It's, you know, just kind of looking at it from, you know, time frame in my life, it feels like winters are getting pushed back later. You know, I mean, here we are in Utah, November 30th, basically the end of November and where we're at in the valley, we've only had two measurable snowfalls here. You know, I think everything is getting, like you said, there you're seeing more snowfalls March, April timeframe compared to, you know, October, November timeframe. And that's just something that I think is, is interesting to look at. I don't know. I haven't looked at any hard scientific data, but just anecdotally, that's what I've seen in my time frame is it just seems like things are getting shifted back a little bit. Yeah, from the stuff that I've looked at in terms of, you know, just uh, overall, like, data or trends or whatever, if you look at a large enough data set, it doesn't seem like there's massive shifts 
um, in terms of timing or anything like that, or even amounts, you have, you know, bad years and good years. And, and if you get two bad years in a row, it seems like everything's getting worse and you get a year like this past year. And it seems like the most recent years seem to have the biggest effect on, you know, kind of your overall perception of recent history. And then, you know, how that winter kind of ended sort of seems to mask how that winter began like this year it just kind of seems like it was a bad snowy winter even though we didn't really get snow until like march april before that it had been pretty dry and, and mostly just cold yeah we went through <clears throat> snow school at work not too long ago and i think if i remember right they were saying like the average snowfall for salt lake city was like 62 or 65 inches in the valley is the average and i don't think we've cracked 40 inches in like the past three or four years um, so considerably less than what average is. So I'm sure that's going to bring the average down, but depends on how long they've been running average, I guess. Mm-hmm. I've been hoping to get a little bit of snowfall before the end of the year because I want to be able to sort of wait for that to be able to get out and do some some more scouting to be able to get on some late season action. Um, because without the snow, everything's frozen. You know, we have several inches of ice now on most open bodies of water. And so because of that, there's really not much at all for fresh tracks, right? The ground is so hard that there's just not going to be a, an indentation left in the mud that hasn't been there for weeks when it was thawed. So I really need the snow to be able to find fresh sign or be able to do an evening observation sit, which gets tough this time of year because you leave for work, it's already dark or it's still dark. And then you, you leave to go back home and it's already dark again. So it's like, there's very little time during the day where you're actually able to be outside when it's uh, still sunny. So it's like you got basically the weekend, two evenings where you could potentially do an evening set. So it's like you want to go hunting on the weekend, maybe you spend all day Saturday just doing an observation set and then move in on Sunday. And then if that doesn't pan out, you got to wait a whole other week. So what's, what's your thoughts? Because as you mentioned specifically on the weekends, you basically had two evenings. What's your thoughts on morning hunting in cold weather like this or later in the year do you think it keeps a deer bedded down longer until the sun comes up kind of warms them up gets them up and moving or do you think they're up and moving you know before daylight like they would be in september october time frame yeah it's a it's a good question and i think sort of the conventional wisdom says that it's really tough to be able to hunt mornings this time of year as it gets cold and as it gets colder and the snow gets deeper they start to move earlier and earlier in the day what I've kind of noticed is that it seems to depend a lot on how far the deer are bedded away from whatever food source they're hitting. I can remember particularly uh, one example where in the marsh that I grew up in, in Northeast Wisconsin, uh, there was, it's basically a big cattail marsh and there's some private agriculture around and there's hardwoods that <coughs> most people access from. We did a lot of hunting on, you know, kind of those edges and, and transitions and whatnot throughout the year. Once the snow hits after the gun seasons move out, you'll be hard pressed, to, hard pressed to find a track and a lot of that stuff that you saw lots of deer in early season and even throughout the firearm season. The deer get pushed out of those, those areas further and further back into the wet areas and the tamarack swamps and all that stuff. And then in addition to that, once the food sources transition over to like that late season agriculture that they can get to, it's like they might be bedding really far back, but they're not traveling to the woods anymore. They're traveling across the marsh just to go right into know, sort of that agriculture. So in that particular scenario, uh, I was able to figure out through scouting that I was able to get on those deer, but they were bedded around one mile from where they were getting food. And so 
I was basically hunting mornings. I was hunting evenings back then and I was having trouble getting on deer in the evenings and in the mornings I'd be going in deep. Hadn't seen much until one day I happened to uh, walk back towards the vehicle and about three quarters of the way back I could see deer uh, tracks imprinted in my boot tracks that I had taken in that morning. Okay, so there we go. Now we know that from the time I walked in, sometime after then, a deer had walked through to get back to its bedding area. So the next day I set up in that area, saw four does. Day after that, went back in there, ended up seeing like a three and a half year old eight pointer that spooked when I tried to draw my bow back. And so the very interesting thing was I was seeing these deer relatively late, like an hour after sunup, which all the conventional wisdom says earlier and earlier, it gets so hard to get on these deer, but they were bedded so far, I think from where they were eating that by the time it took them to get that whole mile from the food sources meandering through those cattails and the hummocks to get back to that tamarack swamp where they were bedding, I think it just took them that amount of time. And by the time they were getting back there, you had a very good shot at setting up and being able to see some daylight movement. So I, I think to answer your original question, I think it depends a lot on the scenario in terms of, you know, our mornings worth it or not. I'd say some areas it's probably not because I've also gone in and you know, you're going an hour and a half before the sun rises and you kicked deer out of their beds already. I've, I've had that happen. And then I've had scenarios like that too, where the deer are coming through an hour after daylight. Yeah, I agree. It really depends on, you know, how far they're bedding from whatever they're eating. Cause if they're, you know, in a still standing cornfield or just knocked down cornfield, they could be bedding there or right adjacent to it. So it's going to be hard to hunt that because by the time you get in there 30 minutes before daylight, they're already bedded. Whereas in your case, they were traveling, you know, a mile away. So you were basically hunting, you know, three quarters to a half a mile from the food and catching those deer in daylight, still trying to get back to the bedding. So I think it's a, it's an interesting idea. I know some people who really believe that when it's cold like that, the deer won't get up and move until they start to warm up. Um, you know, after they kind of laid there in the sunshine, sun's been up for an hour, they may not get up and move around. Um, you know, I think it really depends on where you're at in the area you're hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately you gotta, you gotta get the intel, which like I said, it can be hard to do when it's, you get this many limited days. I mean, a lot of guys, even if you're working a, a normal, you know, <laughs> eight to four job or whatever, there are some days where you can get out early season cause it doesn't get dark until nine o'clock and be able to get in some sits, get in some scouting, get in some kind of, you know, observation or, or, or whatnot. But this time of year, it really limits yourself to, if you don't have trail cameras, you're really limiting yourself based on the amount of hours in the day you have available on the weekends. Yeah. I mean, we're at like the shortest days of the year right now. So, you know, like you said, it's, it's difficult. You can't get out before work and it's difficult to get out. You know, you're out at three o'clock, the sun's down by, you know, five thirty basically. So unless you're going to be able to, you're hunting spots between where you work and home, you're not going to be able to get to it. Right. Right, exactly. And then to top it off for, for me specific, specifically is that, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm really trying to hit now and looking forward to late season is the stuff that is, you know, an hour 15, an hour 20 away, which makes it even that much, much harder to, to really capture that daylight. Yeah. One thing I did want to ask you about in regards to sort of the, the hunting that you've, you guys have been doing out in Utah and then compare that to what you've done historically in Missouri is how are you dressing for these cold weather hunts? That hunt is, that obviously, is, it's obviously a lot more active, I would think, but there's probably periods of time where you're sitting there motionless for 
longer than you'd want to, and you probably start to chill down quite a bit, I would imagine. That's a really good question because that is a learning curve that I've had to learn hunting, especially late season like this when there's snow on the ground over the past, you know, two years. Is because you want to have a tendency to bundle up because it is cold outside, but because you're moving, you don't want to sweat. So what is the perfect layer system that when you're walking, you're not sweating, but then as soon as you stop, you need to start adding layers on and what are you putting on basically. So for this particular hunt, um, I actually, I was running just base layer Merino. So I had the, um, Kuyu base layers that were made in Canada. I think, I don't even remember what weight they are, like 130s or 120s, basically. They were the super lightweight. I had the pants and the shirt for that. Then for the pants, I was only running the guide pants from Kuyu, which they are like the fleece-lined pants. They're Mm -hmm. water-resistant. On my top, I was running one more merino shirt, And then I actually ended up forgetting my guide jacket, which I was planning on wearing periodically or opening the pit vents that are underneath the arms on it. So I actually had to wear, I got a a hoodie from a company called Vormi. It's a solid green hoodie. I'm actually wearing it right now. I actually had that with me, luckily. So that's what I used as my outer shell. It's a heavyweight um, wool hoodie, basically. Hmm. And... I was really able to regulate my temperature with that alone um, when I'm moving. And then after I would stop for maybe 15 to 20 minutes with the wind, I would start to cool down. And then what I would do is I had a Kuyu, um, it's their down pullover that I would throw on my top if I was getting cold. And also in my pack, I had their um, zip-on Kenai bottoms as well as the Kenai jacket as well in case we had to stop in glass for a long period of time I could drop my britches put the Kenai's on under them and then pull my pants back up and the same thing with my shirt I would pull my my shirt off and get basically down to the base layer and put my insulated puffy on basically at that point and be able to glass from that so that's how I've kind of went as regulating when I started out I was wearing too much too many layers because I would be cold like at the beginning. So I would have like, you know, a two base layer pants on and then the guide pants. And as I would, the more we walked, the more I would start to sweat in my base layers basically. And then that's when you get cold really quick. So you've, you've got to have a balance where you can peel a layer off before you start moving and then be able to put a layer or an additional layer on once you stop to glass. Mm-hmm. And how does that compare to when you would be hunting whitetails? So it's pretty similar in when I'm walking compared to when I'm sitting. Um, You know, obviously sitting in whitetail woods, it doesn't hurt because you're not moving. You can have too many layers on and be okay with it. Um, And that's kind of why the the reason I kind of go with like the more athletic fitting camo than the big bulky stuff is it, I'm a smaller guy. So when I layer up, it tends to layer up better on me. It doesn't be like all big and bulky on me. It layers tight to my body. So like when I go whitetail hunting, most of the time I would be running like a base layer, depending on how cold it is, um, a base layer or two, and then maybe even puffy pants once I get to the tree and then climb up. Cause once I'm sitting there, I'm going to have basically want to have as many layers on as possible. So I don't have to move around to add additional layers. 
Um, so once I'd get up there, I'd put on or have on as many layers as possible to stay warm through the hunt. So would you climb the tree with as many layers on as you could, or would you intentionally leave on some my, layers off to be able to put them on once you're in the saddle? On my bottoms, I will typically run once I I will walk to the base of the tree and then put as many layers on at the base of the tree on my waist down at the base of the tree. And then as I go up, I would even run anywhere from just my base layer to maybe the puffy, depending on what the temperature was up. And then I would have maybe a jacket um, or the puffy to add on once I was up there, kind of after my core has cooled off, I would add those layers on, but I didn't want to wait till I got cold to add those layers. I wanted to help retain some of that heat. So as I felt sitting there, it's like, okay, I'm starting to cool off then I would put those layers back on to retain that heat that's already there. Gotcha. So you use puffies a lot. And yes. out west, that makes a lot of sense. I, I can understand how you'd want your your wool, warm one wet, moisture wicking layers as kind of your mobile layers, and then all of a sudden you're stationary, you'd be able to put on that light, packable, ultra-warm thing to be able to give you that instant warmth. My experience with puffies is that they tend to be louder compared to say like a fleece or, or something along those lines, even though their warmth to weight ratio is much better. Uh, with the puffies that you have and down versus synthetic, if you have, you know, some of each, how, how do the noise levels, you know, how does that play out for you and what you've experienced both out West and then tree stand type of hunting? Yeah. So that's a good point. That's a big thing with puffy jackets that you really need to kind of get them in hand and figure out is how loud they are. Um, the down puffy that I have is ridiculously loud. It's a glassing only jacket. Um, if I'm going in on a stock or I'm close to a deer, that jacket's not going to come out and go on whatsoever. It's only for when I'm, you know, laid back behind the spotting scope glassing that I can put it on because it's like a bag of potato chips. And I remember when we were in Missouri, you actually made a comment about that down jacket being so loud because it is compared to the synthetic um, Kenai jacket and pants that I have, they're a lot quieter and you can wear them as an outer layer. So if I was stalking a bedded deer and even once I get to that point where I start slowing down, you know, if I'm 200 yards away, I can layer up again because I know it's going to take me an hour to make that last 200 yard stalk or 100 yard stalk. I can layer back up with that synthetic on the outside and I know it's going to be quiet enough that if I get in there and draw, it's not going to bust that deer. So it's a it's an important part to consider as you're layering where you're going to put this puffy. Um, because like maybe if I was whitetail hunting, I could throw the down jacket on and then throw a layer over it, whether it be something as light as a merino wool or even a, you know, a jacket on over it, it would help muffle the noise of that underneath of there. Because the biggest noise is basically the material rubbing on itself. So if you can put a barrier over that so that it doesn't rub on itself, you can quiet that down. You know, synthetic versus down, it all depends on whether you're going to get wet or not. Uh, you know, that hunt, they were calling for snow. It snowed all morning, basically. But the good thing about snow is it's not rain. You can shake it off, even off on a down. You can just pop your jacket and it pulls the snow off of it. But if it was a rain or something like that, then I pretty much go all synthetic um, that way I can put it on, whether it's to dry it. Like if I'm camping at night, I can, you know, my base layers are wet from sweating or rain. I can throw my synthetic pants on my synthetic jacket on and then climb inside of my down sleeping bag and my body heat will dry out the clothes that I have in there. So I've, I've handled down without any kind of 
not in a, a jacket or anything like that, just bare down. And the same thing with a lot of synthetic insulations. And usually the, it seems like the insulation itself is very quiet, doesn't make any noise. So do you think that with your jackets in particular, do you think it's more the shell material that they choose for their particular garments rather than the fact that one is down and one is synthetic that makes one louder, louder than the other? Yeah, absolutely. It's the material that they put it in to make the shell. <laughs> Um, I don't even know off the top of my head what fabric they used um, on the Kuyu, but I know I have a, uh, the Kenai is like a apex insulation, so it's a woven material. I also have a, the original Spindrift, which is our first puffy they made like in 2012, 2013 timeframe. Um, it's kind of a, it's similar to down in the fact that it's a, it's a loose, so you have to sew like down you have to sew baffles in it to help keep the down in there mm -hmm. um, and even that shell that they used on that was pretty loud so i think it's a lot of it has to do with the material that they make the shell out of compared to the insulation gotcha uh so with my upper body layers i guess for for lower body real quick the ones that i typically will go to is like the uh, i have those first light sanctuary bibs and i do say that ever since i've moved to bibs i've liked those a lot for whitetail stationary hunting just from the standpoint if you don't ever have to worry about you know kind of bending over or whatever and all of a sudden your base layers come untucked and then you get that cold breeze in your waist so having the bibs from that standpoint has been really nice and it helps to to really compress all of your your base layers against your skin to help hold everything you know kind of close so that when you do put your jack on over top you're not quite as as puffed up um logging in it seems like for me, like one layer of merino and then just my normal, um, my Cabela stocking pants, which are uninsulated four-way stretch nylon pants, probably similar to like the, the Kuyu attack, I would imagine that yep. that's about how much I can handle for almost any conditions. And I wear those pants from the first day of early season through the last day of late season. The difference is early season. That's usually all I'll wear late season. I'll put those bibs on over top of those pants once I get kind of situated. And that seems to work pretty well. When I put layers on underneath those pants, like if I put on a fleece um, base layer over top of my merino, I get too hot and I start sweating. Is one thing that I've noticed. Um, but regarding the upper body layers, <clears throat> so I have uh, a Woodbury jacket, which is similar to the Sanctuary, just a little bit less insulation. And then I also have one of their puffy jackets, which is called the Ancapagre. And same thing there, The if you're comparing one versus the other, the Woodbury slash Sanctuary is a much quieter overall jacket and quieter face fabric than their puffy is. Um, during gun season, sometimes since my puffy jacket's a little bit larger fitting than the Woodbury, I'll wear the puffy over the top, but I wouldn't wear that over the top if I was bow hunting. If I was bow hunting, I'd tuck that thing into a kind of insulating layer similar to, I think, what you would do. So it's like, it's like having that trade off a little bit with a puffy. It's like for bow hunting, uh, especially in a tree stand, where, you know, any noise is, is ultra critical late season. It's like, does a puffy really help you as much as Western hunting as it does in Western hunting? Or are you better off just carrying a little bit of extra weight and just having, you know, fleece insulating layers that aren't going to be as, as much warmth per weight, but they're going to be a lot quieter overall. I think having the puffy for people that do both Western and whitetail is a nice, decision because then obviously you can use them for both scenarios. If I was just doing whitetail, 
It's like the puffy is nice, but I might just pack in additional fleece garments. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. I, don't, I like I like the way that fleece it feels on the skin. It's nice, warm to the touch. It's always nice and soft, and it's almost like you get that kind of instant warmth feeling from touching that high loft, uh, more so than a face fabric that is insulative. Um, so I don't know. I guess I could go either way in, in my perspective on on the upper body layers. Yeah, so you brought up a couple of real good points in there. Um, one I want to go back and touch on was you talked about the puffy there in the east. You know, when I wore, you know, whether it was the spin drift or the down in the east, I always kind of had to wear something over it, like I mentioned, to not only muffle the noise, but because of, you know, Smilax, um, multi-floor rows, things like that. Those shells are so fragile that you have to have something over it to protect it. Otherwise, you're going to rip it open. Um, whereas out here in the West, it's not that big of a deal because we don't have as much of that per se. We do have some in some areas, but for the most part, it's all below waist level. Um, so you don't have to worry about that shell tearing as much as you do back East. So like you mentioned, you know, the, the shell is basically just the insulative layer. You don't get that initial warmth feeling when you put it on as you might a fleece or something like that, because a lot of times that shell on the inside is even cold. So if you put it on just over a Merino base layer, you're going to get that initial shock of the cold fabric against your base layer. And you're gonna be like, wow, that's kind of cold. But eventually, I mean, it's going to do well at, at insulating you and heating you back up mm-hmm. compared to the fleece. When you put it on, you have that initial warmth feeling. Um, and another thing you mentioned was the bibs and how they, you know, when you bend over or whatever, you don't have that draft of your base layer basically pulling up. That's something I wish more companies would expand on. Um, whether they make a pant that's slightly taller so that you put suspenders on um, and it comes up five or six inches higher, that acts like a bib so that when you do bend and flex, because I'll say this about out here with about a eight to foot a foot of snow on the ground when you would slip and fall everywhere that snow could go it was going so if you <laughs> slipped and fell on your back and slid down the hill you would get snow up your base layers up against your back and you're trying to get all that snow out as quickly as possible before it starts melting to water which then causes you to get really really cold so that's something that i wish more companies would expand on is like a a bib slash pant hybrid for situations like that. And even in a saddle, you know, hunting in the East, that's kind of a vulnerable spot because you're sitting on your pants, but your jacket doesn't always tuck in between your saddle and your pants. So it kind of leaves a, a draft area that could occur mm-hmm. um, between your, with your saddle and your jacket, basically. Yeah, definitely. And even with a tree stand, I would back in the day when I'd just be wearing pants and, and jackets and whatnot, it was like, you know, especially when I was, kind of outgrowing all my stuff when I was still younger it's like you would you know even lean forward just to rest on your knees in the tree stand all of a sudden you can feel the base layer pop up oh crap got to stand up retuck in your base layers so it's it's definitely nice the only thing is there's always kind of the balance of do I walk with this thing in do I just pack it in because I mean a, a big pair of insulative bibs like those sanctuary ones they I think they weigh like I want to say four ish pounds four and a half pounds something like that just for they're that massive yeah they're i mean they're really warm but they are big and bulky so if you pack it in it's just that extra bulk factor usually what i find myself doing is if i don't have that far of a walk i will walk with them on and just leave the the zips 
pretty much open as, as much as I, I can. The nice thing about the zippers on those is they can pretty much zip uh, almost the entire back half of the, the pants off, right? The zippers go all the way up to the hips and they continue around all the way around your backside. So you could drop out the seat if you wanted to because there's a, a bunch of zippers, not just one zipper on it. Uh, so right. there's like three or four different zippers. So you can either zip from the center down or zip from the um, the ankles up essentially to be able to vent a couple of different ways. And often what I find myself doing too is I might pack it in on the way into the stand. Uh, but then, you know, as you sit there for a couple hours and you kind of chill and then the temperature drops as it gets closer and closer to dark, it's like by the time you're you're finally at, at shooting light, you're pretty chilled even though you got a whole bunch of clothes on and then I usually leave them on and start walking back with those bibs on just to help warm myself back up on the way back to the vehicle and then stop sometime, you know, a few hundred yards down the trail to take them off again and pack them to the to the back of the pack. Yeah, so I can deal with being slightly overheated better than being cold. So I can, like like you mentioned, you were only wearing basically a base layer and then a uninsulated pant. Whereas I can wear, you know, a base layer or two and an insulated pant. I can... I can deal with my bottoms being warmer compared to be, as compared to being cooler uh, and walking in and out. I can deal with that increased level of temperature easier than if I was cold and trying to get myself to warm back up. And another thing, especially out here that I learned is, you know, stocking hats or brim beanies are great, but you can't hike in them. They will cause you to sweat so much more. You know, so I would carry my first light brim beanie in my pocket, and then I would just have my um, breathable ball cap on when I was hiking. And then if I sat down to glass, I would throw that beanie on. But as I was walking, I needed my head to be able to release that heat because heat rises, goes to your head. You know, there's times I just have to take my hat off, um, and you can see basically the steam coming off my head. So, yeah, you know, it's it's a crucial, you know, you may want to wear it, but you got to kind of figure that in as a, a layering system as well is what goes on your head. Yeah. I'm sure you probably noticed that even when we were in Missouri and I'd be wearing those, those beanies as I put the thing on my head and then lift it up. So it's just barely resting on there. Look like a hobo walking through the woods, but it's like, I need that to be able to vent while I have that insulation on the top of my head. And it makes a big difference when you take it off versus if you have it on, if you're walking. And I think that's a, a crucial part of layering that most people overlook is they'll just throw their beanie on and walk out there and be like, man, I'm sweating. It's like, well, just pull your beanie off and stick it in your pocket till you get where you're going or, you know, wear a different hat so that your head can breathe as you're walking around and then put it on when you get to that spot or when you need it. The only problem for me, though, is if I just wear a ball cap, my ears freeze, regardless of how how warm the rest of my body is, my extremities, including my fingers, my toes and my ears, and even my cheeks, if it's nice and windy and you got a, a really cold wind chill, just burns. So it's like, I've, I've never actually tried it, but I would think what would almost be a really good scenario or a good, uh, a good piece of gear to carry for the walk in instead of a hat would be something like a pair of earmuffs or a headband, something along those lines, even though it would look kind of goofy and be an extra thing to carry. I mean, that you're talking a couple ounces and it fit in your pocket compared to keep your ears warm. Like, I don't I don't have that problem. I wear a ball cap every day, all day. So my ears, they may get numb, but I don't feel it. It doesn't bother me as much as just I have to have something on my head. So that's why, you know, I ended up most of the time wearing my ball cap, even glassing for the most part. And then when it got really cold, then I would throw my brim beanie on 
over my hat backwards so the bill of my brimbini was out the back and i would just put it on over my head my hat and just go about that and then when i needed to pull it off i'd pull it off and start hiking Mm -hmm. how about uh face masks do you ever find a need for those no i not really my biggest issue is like we were talking about drafting the air that hits my neck and then runs down like the my back or my shirt basically so i almost need like a small neck gaiter that goes over my shoulders as well because i have like the first light neck gaiter but the problem is it's a single tube so when you get that put on it'll still allow air to basically go down the back of your neck um, down your back basically creating this little cool chimney that runs down your back whereas i need it to kind of flare out at the bottom so that way it'll seal around my chest, my back, my shoulders, and then come up my neck a little bit. But I don't need a, a full-fledged face mask or anything to come up over my face at all. So a nice puffy uh, fleece neck gaiter, I think, would do better than like a merino one for when it gets real cold like that of preventing those, those downdrafts. For me... Probably. For me... I don't have as much of an issue with sort of the drafts entering in my shirt. What I have a big issue with is if it's windy, like say we have a 20 mile an hour north wind and it's 10 degrees, 15 degrees, 20 degrees, it doesn't matter how warm I've dressed. If I don't have a face mask covering my bare skin, I will, it'll take every ounce of, um, determination to stay in that tree <laughs> because my, if it's just like a constant after you know, after sting from somebody slapping your face for hour, you know, just however long you're sitting on the tree, it's just miserable. Uh, so for me, having a face mask is literally like a make or break, whether or not I can sit till the end of shooting light. Uh, if it's, if it's windy enough. Yeah. So you get out there and you're like, Oh, don't have my face mask. I'm headed back to the truck. I got to find it. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time in particular, I'd went out scouting and I got out there nice and early. Uh, it was a January scouting trip, I believe. And, uh, I was just covering as many, uh, islands as I could in the marsh. And I had to quit at like noon because uh, my face was so cold. I couldn't talk. I was trying to take notes <laughs> in the camera. I couldn't verbally, you know, articulate <laughs> words into the camera. Um, my face was red. It, it hurt to the touch. I, you know, I was legitimately worried about getting a uh, frostbite. So I had to cut it short that day and just get back. And, and literally all I would have needed was just a little bit of fabric, just even one of those cheap $5 face masks. And that would have made all the difference in the world uh, just because of that wind. See, I could see the ones, um, you know, kind of the heavier fleece ones that are cut more on the top, kind of where they would go underneath your chin but flare up towards your ears and then dip back down around the back of your neck. Um, I could see those being pretty useful just so that, like, you know, if you get cold, you could kind of, you know, bristle your shoulders up and pull that up just a little bit to where it covers like the most of my neck. Cause I don't have the, well, I mean, I got a giant insulated beard, but for the most part, I don't have any issues between my hat and my, my beard. Um, other than my nose, cause I have bad sinus problems. My nose constantly runs once I get cold. So I'm always sitting on the stand sniffling. Uh, I don't, it doesn't seem to bother deer at all. I don't think they know what it is, but yeah, which Side point to that, the gloves that have the little snot rags or whatever, the ones that have just like a little piece of fleece in the thumb or the finger. It's one of those <laughs> things where you, you think it's kind of goofy or kind of strange when you when you see a feature like that on a glove. But once you have it, it's like, oh, that's I see why they put that there. That's nice to have. 
Yeah, nothing sucks worse than like trying to wipe your nose from like a nylon glove <laughs> just, onto, and you like run across the seam on your nose, and it just like stings, and you're like, yeah, I'd rather just drip all over my face than go through that again. Yeah, just rub your nose raw. Um, <laughs> yeah. What was it? Oh, so uh, one one thing about the face mask thing. So I think one of the other big things too, in addition to just being warm and blocking the wind on that bare skin is being able to ensure that you can still shoot a bow accurately you know last year especially with the trad bow and i was trying to get everything dialed in late season i was really really struggling when i'd have any kind of face mask or, or gloves or or hat being able to shoot consistently again uh, just because that little bit of extra padding that's not firm it's harder to get bone on bone anchor point it really screwed up my consistency. And I was like, even beyond like 10 yards, I was, I was starting to get groups that I was starting to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe I should bring the compound back out instead of the trad bow uh, for that period of time. And that's something you always hear people say, well, practice in what you wear, but very few people are going to go out when it's 14, 20 degrees, layer up and practice in that. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who will. Um, and that's kind of why I just prefer the more streamlined fitting, athletic fitting clothes that are tighter to my body. So I don't have to worry about that as much. Um, you obviously always got to worry about it. But what about gloves? Are you a glove guy? Uh, do you wear base layer gloves and then another wear gloves? Are you a hand warmer in the pocket? I'm a thin glove and muff kind of guy uh, because the muff makes a huge difference regardless of what you have on for gloves. And if you have thin gloves, it's easier to do what you've been doing all season in regards to shooting your bow and hanging your, your setup, you know, working with your climbing sticks, everything makes it so much easier with gloves that are small and thin. Uh, but the big challenge that I have with those thin gloves is of course, anytime you take them out of the muff, they start cooling off really quick and having just even like a Merino glove or, or something like that, it can be tough with the wind piercing right through that uh, fabric. And, and chilling off those hands. Uh, same thing with touching um, aluminum riser bow. So I always wrap my risers with like tennis wrap just to give a little bit of extra insulation on the grip of the bow. So having a nice thin glove that also has, you know, some level of wind blocking ability is important to me. I would love if a company could come out with a battery heated glove that's thin because <laughs> all the battery heated gloves in the market are big and beefy and bulky and you can't do uh, really archery with them uh, and they're always usually noisier face fabrics too it's like if somebody could just come out with like a wind blocking fleece or merino liner thickness glove that would be really nice yeah so how wh that's an interesting idea um what would you would you just have a bigger battery like somewhere on the glove or would you how would you power that like what size battery would you go with um, it would, it'd pro I would imagine it would probably have to be, you know, on the cuff of the glove. Maybe have the glove with, you know, three, four inch cuff or whatever. And the, the battery's basically in that seam and you have some kind of elastic to be able to hold it sort of in place against your wrist and not have it flop around. Um, with the, the heated insoles, I've seen some where the battery just kind of sits up higher on your sock. And then I think the some of them, they have the battery, just kind of a small, flat, thin one that's actually in the insole itself, too. And then with the heated vests, usually it's a battery that's, oh, maybe about an inch by three quarters of an inch by, you know, two or three inches long that fits in a pocket that kind of rests in the, by the hip. So, kind of chasing this rabbit down the hole, 
what if you just run a, a heated vest with sleeves that had a plug in the sleeve where you could attach gloves to heat the gloves? Like you just, I mean, you could, you just have a longer cord to worry with, worry about. Right. But it's, if, as long as it's like sewn in the seam that runs down the, the shirt, then you'd basically have a a plug at the end of that shirt that you could put your gloves on, plug your gloves into that shirt basically. And then the pocket of that, or the battery that powers that shirt would power your glove. Yeah. And so you're, you're bypassing that battery pack in your glove. And well, to that point, why not even just have one garment that is literally the jacket or it's like a shirt, long sleeve shirt with gloves included all one piece of fabric and it's all integrated with the same heating coil system. You have one battery that's like at your hip pocket or whatever. You got an on off button that's on your chest. So you can just poke your chest to be able to turn it on. It heats your hands, heats your, um, your lower back, upper back, chest, stomach. Yeah. I mean, I don't see, I don't see to me that's. That's what would make the hardest part with that is kind of the length of everybody's arm. Whereas, well, I guess it's kind of the same with a plugging a glove in, you know, it's got to be there somewhere, but I think it's, it's a good idea. Um, you know, I don't like gloves. I hate them for the most part. I will wear a thin Merino liner, uh, and my hands in a muff for the most part. And I think it's, there's a couple companies that are starting to do it now, like a muff that attaches to your bino harness. So that way you're not wearing two different things. Your hands can go right below your bino harness and keep them warm. Um, but I can't shoot with my release with a glove on, even though it's a thin Merino glove, I'll actually take that glove off and run a bare hand on my release. And like, you know, this week there was times where, I had my release on the bowstring, you know, stalking does at 40 yards for, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, basically. And so my hand is exposed. My hand is on the cold three-fingered release. So, you know, every chance I could get, I was trying to yank my release off and shove it in my pocket to get it up against the hand warmer to warm my hand up a little bit. But I just, I don't feel like I'm as accurate with a glove on my release hand. Yeah, so to if be I, able to shoot with one on. If I had a handheld release, I'd be wrapping it with something, whether it's you know tennis wrap or whether it's stealth strips or something to be able to give a little bit of a barrier so you're not just holding on to straight aluminum. But so then you're not able to wear your glove. You're not, you don't have to wear your glove, and you still get a little bit of uh, taking the edge off of that cold metal. To me, it's the smoothness of the aluminum against my fingers is what I like. I like the lack of texture, the lack of grippability that so wrapping just, something. So it just slips so it, right into it, the grooves of your, your fingers and yeah. finds that common, consistent and spot every time. That's the thing I like about if I try to shoot with merino wool gloves on, it's just, it. I mean, it's slippery. Like it feels yeah. like yeah. I might let go of the release. But I just, I don't have that connection to the release that I like. So that's why I have to take that glove off and have it against my fingers because I can feel the the release kind of settle into where it's supposed to. And I can feel the release in my hand as I kind of manipulate my hand. Compared to with gloves, I don't have that that feel. Well, that's one nice thing too about using like a wrist strap release. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, but you punch a trigger. (laughs) Hey, hey, open loop, punching the trigger works. If if you can if you can make sure the pin's on whatever you need to hit when you release it. 
Yeah. If it, if it doesn't, I haven't. If it doesn't give you target panic, then I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, if you can shoot them without giving yourself target panic, more power to you. But uh, pretty much everybody punches that trigger somehow, some way, and just I don't know, getting away from my my index finger keeps me from punching it. I don't have a problem of punching a rifle trigger, but you put a bow in my hand, and me and Joel Turner's talked about this a lot. I have serious issues when it comes to shooting a trigger release on a bow, but I can shoot a gun just fine. I have no problems. You know, I just, you put a wrist rocket in my hand and it, it all goes south quick, fast, and in a hurry. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough that I think that, you know, I admit that I, I probably punched the trigger a fair number of times when I use that wrist strap release and sure in the summer I practice by, you know, expanding and getting it to pull through that way. And I practice with a handheld release. I have one of those silver backs that I practice with in the summer, but then once I get in the woods, I've practiced enough with that, that trigger release that I'm not anticipating and I'm able to hold on target. I'm not, you know, always moving up to hit the spot and punching. I'm able to kind of hold on once the side picture looks right, then everything just kind of happens. Um, back to, I'm going to take a step back and go back to the, uh, the heated options, battery powered. Cause it seems like there's more and more things like that hitting the market every year. And for a while for a heated vest, it was like you had like the big power company or the, the tool company ones like the Milwaukee heated vest, the DeWalt ones, things like that. And they're usually pretty bulky. And the only hunting specific company that I know that has one right now is NUMA who has their heated, I think icon X vest and i bought one of those when they basically they got stock i don't remember what it was but they're they're always out of stock whenever they get them in it's like they sell out of them right away so i got an email because i was on their email list that they had some more in stock so i bought one it was like 150 bucks or something and for the just the mental aspect it's like a, a bit of a game changer because you can have that thing sitting next to skin it's a compression fit real thin it's kind of like an under armor thickness type of base layer um it's not wool it's synthetic and it's elastic so part of that is because they need to be able to have those heating coils move around a little bit so you don't break the electrical circuits as you move around right so there's a little bit of stretch built in Um, but having that thing on your skin as opposed to having it above like a single base layer when you punch that button to turn it on on your chest it's literally within a matter of five seconds you can feel that warmth it's like taking a drink of nice hot coffee when you're out in the stand and just having that almost like goosebump feeling of, of warmth entering your body. And it's like, even if it's not doing as much as say like an extra layer would at that point in time, from the, the mental aspect of it, it's is really nice from what I've experienced this year. Even, even like mid-season, like October when it's not really that cold, you get that last little half hour of light when the temperature really starts dipping down. And maybe you, you could have gotten by with one more layer, but you didn't want to put anything else on and you didn't want to be cold for the last half hour. Just punch that thing on for the last 30 minutes and sit there in pure comfort. I've really been, been pretty happy with that, that purchase. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything, even hand warmers, you know, people, when they first stick their hands in that, in a muff and feel that hand warmer, you know, it's that mental feeling of feeling that warmth 
that you feel like you mentioned with the coffee or the hot chocolate or whatever you're drinking that's hot you know it's feeling that go down into your chest and you feel that warmth in there so yeah it's all it's all a middle thing i mean you probably could have done without it but it's that like you said it's that initial warmth feeling late october where it's like all right yeah this is good yeah for sure and yeah I've, i i we looked at that I looked at that online, and then I seen it when you had it there in Missouri. It's an interesting concept. I've never really looked into the whole electronic heated vests, jackets, anything like that. But I know so many people now are tied to their technology when they're in the stand that some people even carry power packs to charge their phone or be able to run their phone, things like that. I mean, so you have that ability there already. You know, I could see somebody making it where you could – you know, run, plug your phone into it and, you know, play on your phone or charge your phone if you needed to, if you didn't need the actual heat part of it. Yeah. And I I don't know what the capacity is off the top of my head, but I know like in terms of hours, you know, I think for that particular vest, it's like a couple hours on high or up to like six hours on low or something like that. There's a medium setting too. So it's not like it's going to give you all day warmth. Uh, But the nice thing is, is you're obviously always wearing layers over the top of it. So those batteries stay insulated it's not like you have a camera battery that's just sitting out in the cold and it's getting sapped because it's 10 degrees out it's sitting against your warm body so you're that battery pack sitting at you know 95 degrees give or take uh, so it really retains a lot of that juice and you're able to get kind of the full performance out of that battery pack yeah and you can run that vest on high for an hour and then kick it down to low until you get cool again and then kick it back up to high for another hour or whatever and you can kind of cycle through that to help conserve that battery for the most part. Yeah, and what it actually defaults to is it'll heat up on hot, and then once it's sort of to temperature, it'll automatically switch over to medium. So you'd have to go mm-hmm. back into it manually and say, okay, I actually wanted more heat to get it back to, to high. So when you start to get chilled in the tree, you turn that thing on initially, it's like, boom, you have that instant real nice hot warmth. And then after about five minutes, when you're, you're starting to get warm, then it kind of dials itself back down a little bit and it retains that temperature setting for a while. And then you, you could tap the button, you know, X number of times to get it to go down to low or back up to high. Right. Yeah. So it goes, you know, low, medium, high, and then it drops back down to medium. So you get that extra burst of heat then it maintains that medium. And then you can dictate whether you want it hotter or colder from there. Yeah. One other thing with the, the muffs and the gloves and, battery packs and, and heat warmers and all these these type of things is that the thickness of the gloves the more insulating the gloves are it seems like the worse it is for me i'd rather have a thin glove or no glove and a warm muff than the same setup with a very insulated glove because once my hand gets cold in a heavy insulated glove it takes a miracle to get them back warm again because you take that insulated glove you stick it in the muff and then all that warm air inside the muff has to go through all that insulation to get back down into your hands versus if you have no gloves or even just a light glove, you put the hand in the muff and it's like almost instantly that hand or that temperature starts to, to transfer into your hand. Yeah. For me, it's, it's more just the dexterity issue. You know, I can't wear a big bulky glove because I don't have the dexterity to be able to use my range finder to use whatever. So that's why I, I just can't stand them for the most part. So I'll run the, the base layer gloves. I think the ones I have are the black Ovis uh, gloves. I don't even know what weight they are. Um, but just stick them inside of the muff, keep my hands warm. But you mentioned hand warmers. Most people use the disposable hot hands, but I know now there are, 
um, some electronic ones as well that you can recharge and use. And then even I think Zippo makes like a, a fuel burning, um, hand warmer. So there's a couple different options for that. You know, for me, I always just throw some hot hands in my, in my bag, because like, even if my feet got cold, like hiking in the snow, what I would do is I would take my, my, um, hand warmer and I would take like the down jacket or something when I was sitting down and glassing, I could pull my boots off, pull my (coughs) gaiters off, pull my boots off and basically throw that hand warmer in my jacket and stick my feet inside of my jacket and wrap it around my feet so that that would basically use like an oven to help heat my feet up similar to what a muff would be for your hands basically. So it gives you a, an option to be able to do things like that by having that extra puffy jacket. Do you ever have issues with cold feet in a tree? Yeah. Um, in a tree, my feet get really cold, like out here hiking in the snow. I just had a pair of Merino socks on, uh, some Solomon quest 4d Gore-Tex boots and then some Yukon gaiters on over that and I didn't have a problem my feet getting cold at all whereas I can sit in a tree with muck boots and wool socks on and it hits 40 degrees and I can't feel my toes so I don't know if my feet are I've tried everything from just wearing tennis shoes to wearing muck boots all different socks from just liner uh, merino wool socks all the way up to thick merino wool socks and I just can't hunting in a tree I cannot figure out why my feet get so cold I think one of the big issues that a lot of people have whether they know it or not is the more they insulate their feet when they're walking in the more your feet sweat and unlike sweating from your head or your back or something when your feet sweat it's harder to tell when your feet start sweating so you might have gotten all the way to your tree and gotten set up and your, your feet still feel warm and they feel dry. But in reality, your socks are probably wet and that can start to cool you off a little bit quicker. I think that, uh, you know, when guys wear rubber boots and they're tucking their boot leg or the pant legs inside the boots to get through, you know, water or whatever they're, if that's just like how they wear their boots over the top of their pants. One thing that I found out the hard way is that if you do that, and you're walking through snow, when you're walking through the snow and you're kicking up the snow behind you as you lift your foot to take your next step, some of that snow can get flicked up and then it falls inside the boot and lands in the the bottom of the boot by your feet and then that melts and soaks your socks. So I found out the hard way after a couple sets of trying that, that that was no bueno because my feet would get soaked and I couldn't figure out why my feet were sweating so much. I tried walking, you know, with, you know, changing socks once I got to the base of the tree and then eventually I figured out that snow was getting inside the boot and that was what was melting. It wasn't just a whole bunch of sweat. It was actually you know, stuff getting inside from, you know, the, the environment. Yeah. And that's, you know, to me, that's one of the hardest things I've had, especially on stand is I've went in and, and tennis shoes and a Merino wool liner sock till I got to the base of the tree. I've taken my shoes off. I have put on a, you know, a heavier Merino sock in my boots. I've pretty much done every combination that I could think of trying to keep my feet warm to the point where I even looked at like, um, a company called Hot Mocks used to make like a moccasin that slipped over your shoe that you could put a, a toe warmer in. I've hunted in, um, insulated Crocs before because they can make my feet sweat just in the house. And I've literally tried everything I can to keep my feet warm on stand. But for some reason, on stand, my feet have always gotten cold. 
Yeah. So one thing that I think if, if you really have cold feet and probably apply to you, apply to probably apply to a lot of guys listening, going outside of just the normal hunting boot realm where you're looking at like muck boots or, or something where you might have 12 or 1600 grams of thin slate or something, branching outside of that style of boot and going to a legitimate pack boot that has a removable insert to go inside the boot, I think can make a big difference. Um, boots like that, you might be looking at like six pounds a pair. They're big and bulky. I mean, the pack boots that I have, I wear them ice fishing and I wear them for real late season stuff too. They're probably, even though like, they're like a size 12, you know, on the exterior, if you saw them, you'd be like, oh man, that's like a size 16 or 17. They're just enormous and they're really heavy and they're bulky and they, they suck to pack in, but they are much warmer than sort of your best insulating, you know, rubber boots. Um, just because of the style, they have that removable insert and there's just that much more insulation and a lot more distance between where your foot is and where that external air is. So packing something like that in, on the back of a stand or lashing it to your pack or something and taking the time to swap out your socks, put on a nice dry pair of socks and then put those pack boots on. And then even a step beyond that, putting on a pair of like Arctic shield boot covers, that makes a huge difference if your feet really do get very cold all the time yeah like one thing out here is getting like the um the same thing they make the window like you put in your windshield of your car to reflect the heat kind of that insulative bubble wrap material like reflectix yeah they use those for not only seat pads when they're glassing but also for their feet as well so when they're glassing in the snow they can be sitting on one of those as well as have their feet on it because it's kind of unnecessary to have your feet buried in the snow when you're glassing because all you're doing is trying to make your feet colder so they'd put one of those down and put their feet on it and then put one down and sit on it so that way you're insulating your feet from the snow and kind of the same thing with a tree stand platform Mm -hmm. you know that's cold aluminum that you're basically your steel depending on what you're hunting from that you're putting your feet on so that cold is wanting to go up through your shoes and something as simple as that to insulate your feet or your boots from that cold material can go a long ways, even in a ground blind, you know, that cold, hard, frozen ground, you can put your feet on something like that and help keep your feet warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. That does make a, anything you can do to insulate yourself from the ground, just like a sleeping pad when you're camping. Yeah. So the more insulation you can put between you and it, the better off you're going to be. Cause it sucks a lot of, a lot of heat out of you from the ground. One thing I've been curious to try, but haven't bit the bullet on is the insulated ins- or the heated insoles, just because the reviews are so spotty on every one that I can find. Yeah. And, and they have good deals on them every now and then. I think Fleet Farm had a pair of the Thermosaw ones for like a hundred bucks. They're normally, you know, closer to 200. And it's like, you get any place you look, Amazon or Cabela's or any of those places that have reviews, it's always like guys that like them and guys that just absolutely hate them. And usually end up with like a three-star average review. It's like, do I really want to drop 200 bucks on something that... I might not really like that much, but the advantage that I could see if it does work is that compared to using something like a hot hands and putting that in between your layers of socks or in your insole or something like that, is that if you put in one of those hot hands, as you start walking out, it's creating that heat as you're walking and then your foot's more prone to sweat on the way in versus if you have one of those heated insoles then you can basically have it turned off up until you get set up in the tree and then turn it on and you only get that heat once you stop moving. Yeah. 
And I mean, obviously, that's kind of the the critical point is, you know, once you've stopped moving and as you're cooling down is when you want to generate this heat. And this is with everything from hats to gloves to base layers or whatever. It's that you need to be able to generate it at that critical point, mm-hmm. um, whether it's adding a layer at that point or in that case, turning it on, but not having it on the whole time you walk in. Because if you're walking in a mile, there's no way your feet's not going to sweat with one of those stick on hot hand toe warmers, basically. You know, your foot is going to sweat with that thing in there. Yeah, totally agree. And it's it's more work. It's one of the reasons I hate late season hunting because it's more work to be able to do a good job at staying warm. Um, Not to mention, you know, especially in your case, you're already carrying enough stuff with your camera gear and all that, and now you got to carry your, you know, your sanctuary bibs in, another four pounds, these big bulky jackets that you got to carry in and deal with. You know, it's it makes it that much more work. Yeah, and... To be quite honest, what I've been looking at for a lot of the spots that I'm kind of scoping out for late season this year, a lot of these spots are areas that don't have trees and I don't plan on climbing trees. I plan on just hunting on the ground so I can use a frame pack, carry in all my additional layers, pack boots, anything I might need to carry. Just have, you know, a three-legged stool, essentially, my camera tripod, and then just walk into some of these areas that have cattails and hummocks and basically just hunt off of the ground. The nice thing about that, too, is that it's like one of the things that sucks the most is if you, you get cold and you're up in a tree and then it gets dark and then you got to take all your stuff down and pack and get back out Whether you got cold hands, you're chilled to the bone and it's dark. It gets almost borderline unsafe. I think in some scenarios. Very well. Yeah. I mean, coming down, especially when your fingers are cold and your feet are cold and you're using climbing sticks, you know, that's a, a sketchy situation to begin with. Cause you don't know, you know, your fingers may not be working right. And, you may not feel, oh, that's the step, but it's really not. You know, I, that is a, a definite scary situation. You know, when we went up on the mountain, you know, when I had my, my XO pack, you know, it looked like I was going on like a three-day hunt because I had, you know, different layers because I didn't know what I was going to need. I had a, you know, kind of a wind shell, a rain shell, uh, a little tarp just in case it started, you know, raining or snowing hard I could put up. So when we got out there and met the guys who'd kind of hunted that area before and I looked at his XO, his XO was basically flat. He had like a liter and a half of water in it and that's all he had. <laughs> and I was like, man, I feel like I'm going on like a three-day hunt. So, you know, obviously prep for the worst, but, you know, there was a time where I went, dropped my pack and went and it started snowing hard, probably lost visibility down to like 70 or 80 yards and I'm like 150 yards from my pack, and it hits me. I have no fire. I have, you know, basically no critical essentials on me in my bino harness that I needed. And I was like, I better turn around and go get my pack and throw my pack on and just hike with my pack because I'm already 70 yards away from it and, or 100 yards away from it, and I can only see 70. I might want to find this because I don't know how long this storm's going to last. So I had to go back and get my pack before I could continue stalking on some deer. To build a fire can get hey can get dangerous pretty quick. Yeah, you never know. I mean, I don't. I'm not one of those people that just wing things when it comes to stuff like that. I always try to be prepared for the worst possible case scenario. Because um, I mean. You know, with a foot of snow, you don't know what you're walking into. You could be walking onto a, you know, a rock slide and roll an ankle or slide down the hill. So I wanted to have enough stuff that, you know, if I got lost, I was like, all right, I'll just wait the storm out and find my way out. There was a day when I was hunting in probably January in Wisconsin many years ago. And, uh, 
I broke through, I was basically just walking along a creek that went through the marsh and I was probably close to a mile in uh, by the point where I actually broke through, but I broke through the ice on that creek and probably went up to maybe knee level or so, but it was higher than my boot that I was wearing. Um, and so instantly that ended whatever I was doing and it was a beeline back to the truck as fast as I could. And, um, by the time I got back to the truck, my foot was totally numb, took the boot off the boot, obviously had ice all over the exterior sock was frozen solid. Uh, so my foot, you know, if, if I would have had that happen in addition to, you know, sort of rolling my ankle on a beaver stump or something underneath the water, right. That could have gotten a little bit sketchy. Yeah, I mean, just so there's been a, a – I'm sure you've seen South Cox this year stuck himself with a broadhead when he was blood trailing um, one of his animals. Yep. The, and then there was a, a guy from the Elk 101 whose arrow fell out of his quiver and he stuck himself um, in the leg with his thing. So there's some freak things that can happen. And I'm not saying you need to carry a tourniquet and a full first aid kit with you. But you need, at least need to have enough stuff to, you know, know what you're doing in case crap like that hits a fan. Like in your case, you know, if you fall in and it goes over your, your knee-high boots, the first thing people want to do is they want to dump that water out of the boot. That's the worst thing you can do. Leave that water in your boot because that water is going to help whatever insulative temperature is in there. You're going to be able to keep your foot warmer with that water in there than if you were to dump it out. Because all that water in there is not going to freeze, whereas if you dump it out and what little residue is in your pants and water that's in there is more likely to freeze, causing it to get colder than if you were just to leave your waders with water or your boot with water in them. Mm -hmm. That's another reason, too, why I've, I've started to wear my pant legs outside of rubber boots if I am wearing rubber boots, just because it seems like if you do go over the boot, it's got more work to be able to work itself up in between those two layers and then back down into the boot. Sometimes you get a quick dunk and it goes above your boot and you actually, Hey, I'm still dry. Got lucky, right? Yeah. With a good waterproof pair of pants, you've got a second or so before that water is able to go, you know, down up your length of your boot and then up and over the water basically. So it's kind of seals it off. So it gives you a second to be able to be like, Oh crap, back up or keep going or whatever. But yeah, that's a, that's a good point is, you know, with gators or anything like that, I mean, obviously gators won't help if you're wading the water, but in snow, you know, that's critical. Any type of snow, you know, gators on because that keeps the snow from getting inside of your boot, which obviously, like you mentioned, melts, causes issues. You know, gators are a key, especially out here this time of year. Um, regarding the, the safety thing, I on the bottom of my pack, I did add, I have one of those um, lighter weight, uh, first aid kits that weighs maybe a pound. And I just kind of use the Molly webbing on that to basically attach that to the bottom of my pack. So it doesn't interfere with any of the climbing stick carrying methods or whatever that I would use with that pack, but it's just there just in case, you know, it's got band-aids and, um, you know, Tylenol and things like that. Just real basic stuff, tape. Yeah. See in my, the front of my bino harness of the uh, outdoor vision that I have has like a basic first aid kit that's got Tylenol at leave. And then I've put in there like some, uh, steri strips, like for a, a large gash wound, you can kind of like a butterfly bandaid, you can pull them together. Luco tape is really good. Um, I have like a, a quick clot pad. So it's like a four inch by four inch pad. That's got the, uh, 
hemostatic clotting agent in it so that you can put it over there and seal it. And when it comes in contact with the blood, it will basically clot that up. Um, so I have things like that. You know, I've got a buddy who's a EMT and we've talked about, you know, trying to incorporate a tourniquet onto, uh, whether it be a pack strap or onto a, a bino harness, you know, so many people now are carrying tourniquets for whatever reason, you know, to me, a tourniquet is you're about to die in 10 seconds. Let's get a tourniquet on you. But for the most part, you know, pressure on the wound or packing the wound, you know, you can, you can deal with 90% of things with basic first aid skills. Yeah. Even the, you know, the clotting agents, you got to be kind of, you know, only use them if you absolutely need to use it type of thing. Cause they, they do do some damage in their own right. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, because I deal with so many guns at work, I carry a full fledged trauma kit that has chest seals, that has a tourniquet, that has quick clot because you never, you know, accidents do occur. Um, you know, so obviously with as many guns as I deal with and stuff, you know, if something happens, I wanted to be able to help me or somebody else until actual EMTs arrive to me, you know, out there in the wilderness, something like that, you know, you need to be able to, to think on your feet and think safely about things like this um, and be able to know what you need to do in basic situations like that. Yeah. Don't try and, and be the hero, but keep yourself alive until the, the actual help comes. Yeah. That's the big thing. Just, you know, keep yourself alive until the professionals get there. That's all you're there to do basically. Um, on a lighter note uh, with black Friday and, uh, cyber Tuesday just coming past. Wait, I thought it was cyber Monday, not cyber Tuesday. I don't know. There's so many deals. I get emails like every day sale extended sale about to end, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I did go ahead and I ordered another pack. So the one that I ordered this time was the mystery ranch Pantler, which is their full fledged guide light frame, uh, which is their kind of this, the standard frame across all their Western packs. So it's, a little bit bigger and beefier than the pack on the pop-up. Right. Um, so that one is only like 2,500 inches. It's essentially a day pack. But my thought was I can use that as a true crossover to be able to hunt Western and be able to basically throw in an extra 40 liter dry bag with camp and stuff, dump that stuff out, and then just basically day hunt from camp with that 2,500 liter and that nice uh, frame with the ability to kind of pull it out and, and load meat into that uh, – that space. And then I was going to compare it against the pop-up and say whether or not I wanted to keep both the pop-up and that pentler or if I wanted to just keep the pentler and sell the pop-up. So the pop-up's nice, can handle about 75 pounds fairly comfortably, but it's not a, a true, you know, heavy duty load hauler. Right. And that's, you but know, it's nice for a whitetail. Yeah. And that really what it comes down to is how are you going to be using the pack frame, you know, up there, are you going to be quartering deer packing them out that way or, you know, are you looking for more of a, you know, broad range pack that you can do that's overkill for whitetail, but you can get by mule deer hunting with it or hunting out in the West with, and that's kind of where you're at is, you know, do you go underkill for Western hunting, but good for whitetail hunting, or do you go overkill for whitetail hunting and good on mule deer hunting? Yeah. And from a weight perspective and a comfort perspective, I don't have any issues with carrying a big heavy frame pack like that for even whitetail hunting because it's, it carries whatever you're carrying. So well, you have a five pound pack or six pound pack, whatever it is with 10, 15 pounds of stuff in it, camera gear and you know whatnot. 
that's not something I'm going to get tired with. It's never like, oh, my shoulders are heavy because it carries the weight so well distributed between your shoulders and your hips and, and everything else that is just a non-issue. What I think is a little bit more of an issue for me is once I get up in the tree, I have to basically take that pack and hang it on a hook or, or something. And that takes up a lot of space. Yeah. You can cinch the cords down, but even those little nylon straps make a little bit of noise when you're tightening them down, you got the plastic buckles and whatnot. Uh, so it is a little bit more of a, a pain versus a pack that's a little bit smaller. Maybe you don't need to cinch it down to be able to get a nice tight uh, profile to the tree or even a more minimalist pack like the one that you have, that sling pack, which really doesn't take up much space at all. Um, or basically just using like dump pouches on the side of your saddle or something like that if you're if you're going real light, which obviously you can't do as well when you've got a bunch of extra clothes. But Right. And that's to me that's the thing is, you know, when I'm whitetail hunting, I don't want my pack to have any more than what I absolutely need. So grunt call, bow hanger, you know, stuff like that. I don't I don't like to have a big pack because it just ends up being a catch-all crap just gets put in it. Whereas when I'm out here, you know, it's okay because I meticulously figure out what is going to go in my pack. Whereas I don't do that as much whitetail hunting as, you know, I have a big pack, but I can cinch it down tighter. You know, I run that 3,500 from XO and I can hunt uh, about seven days out of that pack and I have no issues. Um, don't need to use the load shell for anything, you know, but when I look at everything, basically all you're adding is food, uh, bivy, tarp, and sleeping bag, basically, is what you're adding on top of, you know, a two-day hunt to compared to a day hunt. That's all you're adding is that little bit. So that's what fills up the rest of that 3,500. So in a day hunt, I could probably get away with the 2,200 or somewhere in that time for or that size frame. Um, like you're talking about with that pack. So, I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. Did you end up buying anything on the, the once a year sale from, I bought all kinds of crap. I don't even remember what I bought now. <laughs> It'll all start showing up sooner. I bought a new release. Um, I got picked up a hot shot, two fingered release that clips on the string. Um, out here in the West, I like to have an open hook release that I can hook onto my D loop. Um, whereas back East, I like to have one that clips on my D loop and then I can hang my bow with the release on there compared mm-hmm. to have to grab the release and then hook it on there. So yeah. that's kind of what I went with. I went, I've got a Carter whisper for hunting out here. Then I picked up their X spot. I think it was called two finger. Um, yeah, that, that is something that I've been looking into too, is a, a handheld release that you can clip onto the string. Even though I like the, the wrist rocket, it does suck clipping onto the D loop and then unclipping to be able to move the camera and then reclipping it back in again. You got to look back down every time. Right. So I could see that being a real pain. Um, like you said, cause it would be clip it in and all the deer move, unclip it, move the camera. Then you got to go back to clip it in. I could see that being, being a real pain. I don't have to deal with that. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, you're saying, so you got, you bought the release. Anything else for whitetails? Um, no, I was waiting, uh, two tracks, or they're a bow company. They also have the Coops cap, which is a felted wool hat that has like fold down ear flaps on it and a short brim on it. Uh, they were supposed to have a sale on Monday. So I'm waiting. They still haven't had it or haven't posted it. Um, I'm waiting to see if they have one of those in my size and I'll pick it up as a short brim, kind of similar to a brim beanie, but th- kind of like what you do with your 
hat as you flip it up over your ears when you do when you're walking in um, so be able to flip it down but i haven't ordered that yet i'm waiting on them so um i ordered a a new replaceable blade knife uh, it's made by Civilware. Don't uh, you have enough of those things? Oh, man. I got so many of those <laughs> things. It's not even funny. But every one that comes out, I'm like, I got to try that one. So I buy it. And then I'm like, nah, it goes over in the pile. I think there's like eight sitting here next to me. So I'm going to try that one when it comes in. It looks like it's kind of like a uh, a Tito or a Taito, but with scales on the handle. So it'll probably be better than that one. Interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think I did decent in terms of not buying a whole bunch of stuff, but the things I did buy were, were big ticket items, but then the savings was also pretty large because of that. Yeah, it's like sometimes you never know because it's like, you know, do I buy it now because it's a really good deal? Or are they going to like discontinue it? I can buy it at a better deal or what's going on? And I don't know. I just buy it and it's like, oh, well, two weeks later it's on sale for less and I'm like, ah, crap. Oh, well. Uh, I was going to buy that Harvester beanie from Nomad. That was kind of that brim beanie that I showed you. Yeah. So I ended up, I I bought, I went to look online initially. I couldn't see it. it. Like it said available in certain stores only or something like that. I ended up like reopening up the website and it showed up. So I bought one and then I got an email like the next day saying they're actually out of stock. It went through by mistake. <laughs> so I got the, I got the refund for that and they weren't available anywhere else. So I ended up looking on Amazon and, I found a brimmed beanie from the company Cole, and it's kind of like a like a tannish, grayish hat that's you know a nice brim beanie made out of wool. Uh, so I figured I already have the one that's from Numa, but that one's kind of dark brown for late season hunting and off the ground in marsh. I want something a little bit lighter, gray or, or tan. So I went with that. It's like thirty five bucks. That's not bad. I got a vacuum sealer. Uh, <clears throat> from Camo Fire, they had a refurbished food saver vacuum sealer I picked up from them because mine's uh, going downhill quick. It's not sealing as well as it should. Uh, I got two of them, so once one of them goes down, I got to back up. Yeah. But anyways, I'm yeah, I'm really hoping that uh, we get some more snow not necessarily now, but hopefully once muzzleloader season is done, then I hope the snow hits. I want to give, you know, I want to be able to have the deer doing whatever they're going to do until all the, the firearm seasons are done with, and then hopefully we get some snow and I'm able to, to start put, putting together some pieces to the puzzle and at least get a couple good sets before the season ends, which in Wisconsin is, I think, the first week in January is when it ends. Minnesota ends December 31st, but I might stick to... Wisconsin, just from the fact that there's a couple spots that I, I really like from the basis of agriculture mixed with marsh right next to it and spots that I can get in there on the ground, have a good ground hunt with, and not really have to worry about any other hunters walking back in there. I've got, well, three days until deer season ends. I'm probably not going to make it back out before then, but I've got two week, a little over two weeks for elk season. I might head out then, but I'll be, I'm going to go to Virginia to hunt seek a deer in the marshes up there uh second week of december i guess so that's going to be fun and then after that by the time i get back from that pretty much everything will be closed 
Um, I do have a swan tag, um, so I may try to go swan hunting the last week of season and see if I can find a swan. How big are those things? They're pretty big. I mean, over 20, over 20 pounds? Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty big. So we've been seeing quite a few. I got a buddy that they killed. Uh, I guess that five of them went. They all five had tags, and they they killed their five pretty quick. So hopefully, I can get out after them before season closes. Nice. Thanks once again for everybody listening into the podcast. We really appreciate all the feedback that we continue to get with the episodes that we put out. You can find, again, more of our content if you haven't already been uh, following us on YouTube. Uh, we got Bobby's channel is Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube, and mine is, of course, DIY Sportsman. And in addition, be sure to check out all the podcasts on the rest of the network, the Sportsman's Nation. Make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram. Subscribe for whatever podcast app you typically listen to your podcasts with. And please leave a review on iTunes. That'd be much appreciated. We want to, of course, throw out a, a quick plug to our partner, Arrow Hunter, for helping to make this podcast possible. Again, if you haven't tried saddle hunting, try and find somebody somebody locally who would be able to help you out, kind of show you the ropes, so to speak, and uh, get you in a saddle. And a lot of times, I think the biggest questions for, for kind of holding people back when they're thinking about potentially changing from a tree stand to a saddle or maybe even just looking at it as something to add to their arsenal for equipment to use just that initial learning curve and and knowing whether or not you want to have to spend the money to find out whether or not you're going to like it can be sort of a hang-up for some people so check out the saddle hunter page on facebook check out saddlehunter.com they have a map of many of the current members and a lot of these guys i mean we have people saddle hunting all over the country it's very likely that you'll be able to get in touch with somebody who's fairly local to you to where you might be able to meet up and do some kind of a demo uh, just so they can kind of show you what the thing looks like, put it in your hands, let you set up on a tree at ground level or whatever, just to be able to see, you know, without spending the money, whether or not it's something you're going to like. So make sure to give that a, a shot, and you can find more information about the Arrow Hunter saddles in general at arrowhunter.us. Thanks for listening.